everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name is Tina with my friends, Jane and Wendy. Hi, how are you guys doing? Hello. Good. How are good. you? I'm good. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad it's Friday, and I'm so glad to be spending this time with you and with our viewers out there. We just want to welcome everybody who's joining us here tonight. Uh, we want to thank you, if, uh, your returning viewer, or if this is your first time, we want to welcome you. And just to let you know that this is a live show, so that if you have questions or comments, or you just want to say hi, how you're doing, um, be sure to put your comments and questions down in the comment section below, whatever social media platform you're watching from tonight. We love interacting with our audience. It's always a lot of fun. And we love seeing um, how God is working in your life. And it's really cool because we've had people from literally all over the world joining in and just sharing things with us. And we're so happy to be with you all and to be answering your Bible questions. So we've actually had a lot of really great questions come in. I'm super excited about them. Um, this week we had awesome, awesome questions. So uh, before we dive into those, uh, Jay or Wendy, you want to start us off with a word of prayer? Sure, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this week and for how you've been leading and protecting and providing. And we pray, Lord, that right now you just dwell in the midst of us, even though we're separated by many miles and oceans. We pray that your spirit unite us in one spirit, that we may be brought into your truth, brought into your love, and help Help us all to just speak your words this day and hear your words. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Wendy, what's our first question? Let's go ahead and get that first question up. So Daniel is asking, why was the New Testament written whenever the Old Testament already existed? Does this mean the Bible was changed or updated? Did Jesus or God approve of the New Testament? So Daniel, this is a very excellent question, and I'm I'm glad you asked because I think a lot of people have a misconception about what the New Testament is, what's it trying to do, how does it fit into God's plan. So let's dive into that. Now, I think at first an important concept to understand is this is big word for some people is this concept of progressive revelation. And at the heart of it is this idea that God didn't give humanity everything all at one time. And I, I don't believe God ever is. There's so much to know, so much to learn. God is an infinite God that this is something that we get to look forward to over the course of eternity. And I think of, think of this analogy, too, where just go back in time 200 years. Go back, Just go back to like the 18... You know, like around the 1820s, 1830s, look for Abraham Lincoln. He's a smart guy. And then try to explain to him everything he needs to know so he can make his own iPhone. I mean, you're going to have to teach him modern physics, including electricity, magnetism, radio waves, photons, electrons, LEDs, touchscreens, sensors, cell phone technology, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, microprocessors, flash memory, uh, refined earth metals, EUV lithography, and other manufacturing processes. And then you have to get into software, modern computing, apps, the internet. So are you going to be able to teach Abraham Lincoln these things in one sitting? I think, <laughs> nope. It's going to take you a very long time. And it may be that 
Abraham Lincoln will die before you would be able to teach him everything he would need to know to build his own iPhone. And it's, do, why do we think it's going to be different when it comes to God? And so we have God from the very beginning revealing certain things about him. You know, Adam and Eve probably heard a bit, but they were still pretty brand new. Also, just created beings, who knows how many weeks or months went, went by before they sinned, but they were starting to learn about God. Then they sin, and then God now is continuing to educate over time, over time, over time. Then you have you get to things like the flood. God starts over a bit with Noah. Then we have the Tower of Babel. A lot of humanity is plunging, going back into sin. God calls out Abraham. Again, almost has to start over with religion with Abraham. And then the Israelites end up going into Egypt. And again, now they almost have to, God almost has to start over because they're surrounded by false religions. They, they're losing touch with the real God. God calls them out. And now he gives them a lot of, of what we consider today um, the core part of the Old Testament, the Torah, the, the, the Pentateuch, Moses' five books. We have those things now given to the Israelites to help them better understand God, what's he like, he's like. And as part of this, God gives them these rituals, these festivals, uh, these laws, all these things in place to help teach them about God, God's law, and God's plan for the future. And God wanted them to continue to carry these things out until they get to the point where these things will be fulfilled. And not all of these things get fulfilled. I mean, the Ten Commandments are an ongoing thing that we ongoing basis fulfill. The Sabbath is something that on an ongoing basis we keep. So it's not pointing to anything in the future. In fact, it's in memorial to creation because God is the creator. God, God can set times and laws and, and, and decide when we do things. So that, that's kind of the context of what the Old Testament is. But what there's one other key component to the Old Testament, which is all these promises of the coming Messiah. So we have with Adam and Eve, God says in Genesis 3, telling Eve and the serpent that, hey, guess what? Uh, you know, there's going to be a man who comes from the woman, the seed of the woman, and he will take on the serpent. The serpent will bite his heel, but he will bruise the head of the serpent. And from that moment on, we knew there's going to be someone special who's going to be born in the human race. And we get to Moses, and Moses talks about how there's going to be a prophet who's going to be greater than him. And, and then with each succeeding prophet uh, and David, the Psalms, we go down and we get more and more and more and more ideas of the coming Messiah, the, the, the Savior that's to come. And, and so then we get to the New Testament times now, and they have all the prophecies, right? They have the prophets, they have the law, uh, the books of Moses. So, so they're waiting. Where is this Messiah God talked about? And, and when we read the New Testament, then we start seeing that all of the New Testament, or, or most of it, is really pointing back to the Old Testament. The New Testament writers are saying, look, this is how this prophecy got fulfilled. This is how this one applies to us today. I mean, it's just so connected to the New Testament. Then we get to the book Revelation, and I talk about often that Revelation is the final exam. If I were to teach a class, I would 
have everybody study all the other books of the Bible and, and learn them, including the Old Testament. And then I would say, now interpret the book of Revelation for me. And you would never be able to do it without the Old Testament helping you unlock it. And so this is how God's work. And, and, and then this concept of, pro, of progressive revelation, this comes from Amos 3.7. God says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So who are the prophets? When did these things get revealed through his prophets? A lot of people might think, oh, the prophets stopped at the Old Testament. But if we jump to Revelation chapter 22, verse 9, there's a very inter interesting statement made here. It says, then he, the, referring to the angel speaking to John, the apostle John, says, then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for, or you'll worship the angel, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. But we see here how he's saying, your brethren, the prophets, he's putting the apostle John in the same category as the prophets. And this is very, very much the case. You look at what were they doing? They're, the, the apostles like Peter, James, John, all these guys, they're performing miracles just like the prophets of old. They're writing scripture just like the prophets of old. And they are preparing the way for Christ's coming. They're prophesying, prophesying of the Messiah, this time his second coming, just like the prophets of old. So the prophet really is a spokesperson for God. And that is the same role that the apostles had. It means sort of the same thing. Somebody, they, were, they were God's spokesmen now in the New Testament times. So if we go back to the Old Testament, then... This concept of the canon, how did we get the Old Testament canon? Did, you know, the, the Jews obviously realized that certain books were more important than the others and said, okay, these are the ones that we're going to set aside. We recognize these are scriptural. But this process didn't stop there. Now, obviously, people who remain Jews, refuse to become Christian, are never going to accept what we call the New Testament. But the New Testament writers themselves did see that they were writing scripture. And, and it might not be necessarily in the heat of the moment to recognize they're writing scripture. A lot of the New Testament is actually letters. We call them epistles. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are, we call those gospels. And then the book of Acts is kind of like a, a record, a chronology. But then everything else is pretty much written as a letter. Even the book of Revelation kind of was to, written to be like a letter to then be read by all the different Christian churches. So that especially is what these writers saw themselves as writing. But interestingly, uh, interestingly, we do have people calling these writings scripture. And uh, the best example of that is is Peter referring to Paul's writings. He says in 2 Peter 3.15, says, and consider that the long-suffering of the Lord, blah, 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 goes on. He talks about Paul. So also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in his epistles, you know, his letters, speaking in them of things in which are 
some things hard to understand, which is very much Paul, hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. So here, Peter is saying the writings of Paul are very important and they are scripture. Even if they're hard to understand, they're scripture. So I, how to, and, and even Paul at times when he's writing, he might make distinctions or, or indications like sometimes he's just speaking as himself, uh, but he's one who's been informed by the Holy Spirit. And then by implication, he's showing that there's other times where he's totally writing under the pen of inspiration. And uh, like, for example, 1 Timothy 4.1, here's Paul writing. He says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So he's, he's outright saying, I'm being inspired by the spirit and I'm passing on what I'm getting directly from God. And this shouldn't be a surprising thing. These writers weren't making up some new concept. Jesus himself says in John 14, starting at verse 25, he says, These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit from whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your rem remembrance all things that I have said to you. So, so the, you could call this sort of like the spirit of prophecy. And these people were had that spirit. The, the spirit is guiding them, teaching them. And what's also interesting is a lot that they, they knew, they also had, they, they again got directly from Jesus. Jesus opened their eyes to how the Old Testament was being fulfilled during their New Testament times. And this is why they're like, we got to write these Gospels down. So you look at Luke 24, starting at verse 5. We talk about the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is walking with two of the disciples. And, and verse 25 says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this is really crit critical. This is right after Jesus is resurrected, you know, right after the cross. And now he's walking alongside some of these disciples and just showing them verse after verse after verse from from the Old Testament, so Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, and he's showing him, this is about me, this is about me, this is about Jesus, this is about Christ, this is about me. And through that now, they're suddenly realizing, oh, wow, these are being fulfilled in my lifetime. I have just witnessed these things coming to pass. And maybe Jesus showed them future things that would then have to be carried out as well. And so remember now, they spent many days together during... Uh, leading up to the time of, uh, oh, I'm blanking out on it, <laughs> um, Pentecost. Before leading up to that, they're spending a lot of time together. And uh, they also continue to spend a lot of time together. And so what these disciples learned directly from Jesus would have been passed on to the others. And this would have found its way into the Gospels that we have too. Because you can see, for example, uh, Matthew 1. 
starting at verse 22, it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is this is just a, one of many, many examples where you go through the Bible and it keeps saying, and this was to fulfill this prophecy. So the New Testament is not looking to wipe out. It's not looking to uh, replace the Old Testament. It is it is like adding a layer on top of it. Like the Old Testament, like the book of Moses, the Pentateuch was one layer of a cake. And then we get the other prophets as an additional layer. And then you have uh, the New Testament sitting on it as like a third layer. And it's there to help us understand the layers below it. And at times it might seem like they're totally different. Like the God of the New Testament is totally different than the old. But that's not because that's really the case. God really was also a God of love. And when we look at verses like in Ezekiel, uh, I forget the exact verse in Ezekiel, but there's multiple in Ezekiel and, and the Psalms and these different books, we realize that God really was, a, even Deuteronomy and in time of Moses, God was really a God of love. God really wanted them to learn to love, but these people at the time just didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to build an iPhone. They'd never seen an iPhone before. So he had to start with the basics. And this is how it all comes to pass with the New Testament. Tina, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that was really good. And I, I appreciate um, your idea of like that the Bible is progressive in a sense. Um, as you know, humanity has progressed in its spiritual walk. God will give us more and more light as you know, the human race is ready in a sense. And I think that's really true. Like that you see the example of that, like in Christ's um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, you know, verse 27, 28, he says, you know, you have heard it was said of them of old time, um, thou shall not commit adultery. And so Jesus is quoting, you know, the 10 commandments in the old Testament. And he says, and Jesus says, but I say to you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed ad adultery with her in her heart. So he not only takes the Bible, he doesn't say throw it away. He expounds upon, it. he makes it more clear and more beautiful and more relevant. And, you know, um, so I think that's really what the, the new Testament is about is taking what's already there and just seeing um, new and beautiful things out of it. And, you know, mm -hmm. Jesus says, study the scripture for in it, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. And the only scripture he was talking about at that time was, you know, the old Testament. So yep. Jesus is in no way saying, you know, we're getting rid of the old Testament, but rather he's saying my words now are, you know, cohesive with the old Testament. And now they're, it's just a, a clearer picture of, of the God's character, which we will be studying forever and ever. And, um, Amen. just, yeah. And then just as a verse, like, you know, is that scriptural? I guess you always want to make sure you, it, things I'm saying are scriptural. And second Timothy, um, chapter three, verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Um, and verse 17 says that, so the man of God will be perfect and entire. So basically, yeah, no, the whole old and new is, is all good. Um, we need it all to be honest. And I see we got a comment from Gabriel. Yes, Gabriel says, uh, there are religions that reject the New Testament. For example, the Muslim religion is based on the original Testament. I didn't, I didn't know why they rejected our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that makes sense. Thank you. 
Cool. I'd be interested to know more about mm-hmm. your your thought there. But yeah, even Islam, though, I think says there are different texts. They, so mm-hmm. Islam started in around 300 AD, so about 300 years after Christianity, uh, if my memory is serving me right. And I was six, but maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking. Anyways, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I can double so, check. You keep talking. Yeah, I'll double check, double check, uh, fact check while we say that. And, uh, and what happened is they sort of say that our... I don't want to totally pretend to be the expert on Islam, but I have heard consistently what the idea is. Um, the angel that spoke with Muhammad told him, like, the the Jews and the Christians have a corrupted text. So basically, the Old Testament is corrupted, is not accurate, and then we're giving you a new text. So they would say they're probably even a new revelation, um, but one that goes, you know, sort of rewrites both the Old and New Testament, whereas Christianity doesn't see itself replacing the Old Testament. It says the Old Testament is good. Maybe the Jews initially misunderstood it, but uh, but it it yeah, we Christians can can stand on both both pillars, the Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah, and just a fact check. Yeah, it was the year six ten is when oh, Islam right. began. Interesting. Yeah. I know. I've studied a lot of things about Islam. It's a very interesting religion. I have friends who are uh, Muslim and um, definitely some interesting things there, but a little bit different for sure. Um, do we have some more comments or do you want to, should we wait on those? And do you Are you ready to question? answer them? I didn't even get to. <laughs> Let's just go with uh, your next question, Tina, and then we will come back yeah. to these and Jay will take a look at them in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So let's get our next question. Up. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So Roland is asking, why is the tribe of Dan missing from the 144,000? Revelation 7. Oh, I love that. I love, love, love this question because it's actually something I um, studied a while ago. And as I studied it more, I saw an even more clear understanding of why. And it is so perfectly clear as you look at the Bible, both in the Old Testament and because you have to have the Old Testament again to understand the book of Revelation. So let's start off with some basics. So um, Israel, the nation of Israel was based on the 12 tribes of the literal Israel. There was, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and Jacob became the man Israel. God renamed Jacob to be Israel and Israel had 12 sons. And so each of those 12 sons became a tribe of the nation of Israel. And so, um, you know, and so there was, you know, Reuben and Judah and the, you know, Levi, all these 12, you know, brothers who each had their own tribe. Now there was a brother named Dan. Oh, Dan. (laughs) Um, This tribe became, it did some interesting things. Let's just say that. So the tribe of Dan, the, the name Dan actually means judge. Like if um, you read the book of Daniel, his name means God is my judge or you know God is judge. So Dan just simply means judge. And it's interesting because right before their father Israel passed away, um, he gave a prophecy in a sense of each of the 12 of his sons. And so in verse 16 of excuse me, Genesis chapter 49, verse 16 and 17, he gives a prophecy about Dan. And it says in verse 16, um, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So that was supposed to be his job, was to judge the people. 
or to judge as, you know, judge the people. And then verse 17, though, it says something very different. Um, if you keep going, it says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. So basically, it shows that Dan's purpose was to be a judge. And obviously, there's so many verses in the Bible about, you know, judge righteous judgment, to be a good judge, to be a righteous judge. But he's saying, but I know what's going to happen is he's going to end up being a viper or a serpent, which, you know, that equates to, you know, the devil, basically something evil. And we do see that in the tribe of Dan and it breaks my heart. Um, now, really quick, when you're referring to, you know, Dan being taken out of the um, 12 tribes of Israel as part of the 144,000 at the end of time, because, um, you know, the book of Revelation chapter seven, you know, it says, you know, the tribe of Judah, there was 12,000 and, you know, 12 times 12,000 makes 144,000. However, when you get down to the verse, excuse me, six of Revelation seven, verse six, it says, and of the tribe, when you go down, um, you know, tribe of Aser, tribe of Nephilim and the tribe of Manassas. So basically, Dan is replaced by Manassas. And if you know who Manassas is in the Bible, or Manasseh, this is the New Testament Greek um, version of the same word, or the same name, which was Manasseh. And basically, he was the firstborn son of Joseph. And it's interesting because Joseph still has a tribe as part of the 144,000, but Manasseh, the uh, Manasseh, his firstborn son, replaces the tribe of Dan. And I think that there's two reasons that the book of Revelation will, I think, confirm why I believe that is so. So if you look at the tribe of Dan and what happened with them in their history, there's two things that happened. Um, you know, after, uh, you know, Israel went into slavery in Egypt and then Moses drew them out, you know, there was 12 tribes to be the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, when you get to the book of Judges, you know, they're, you know, Israel's finally in the promised land, but they don't have a king yet. And things are kind of just, you know, falling into place and things aren't really quite stable yet. And so, you know, and basically it says in the book of Judges that men were just doing what was right in their own eyes. Like there was, there wasn't really a structure um, government going on at that time kind of the wild west of the Old Testament in a sense. And so what you see though, there's two instances we see that the tribe of Dan did that I think is why God had to pull him out of the 144,000 and replace um, him with the, with the tribe of Manasseh. Now, if you go to the book of uh, Judges chapter five, basically the context of Judges chapter five is that um, it says in chapter four, that basically there was a people that were oppressing the Israelites. And so they were, you know, under, um, a, you know, they were under oppression. They were saying, let's, let's band together and let's get out of this. Let's pray to God. You know, we, this happened because we sinned. Let's return back to God and let's fight and earn our freedom again against these Philistines. And so um, they all said, yeah, well, let's, let's battle together. All 12 tribes are going to band together and we're going to fight back and we're going to free ourselves from this. And, you know, God blessed them in battle. And so then you see, um, you know, and this was led out by Deborah, who was a prophetess and, um, and a judge of Israel at that time. And so she, after the battle, they win. And then she sings a song, a song of victory. 
and she goes through all of the tribes and says something about them. But when she gets to Dan, you see in Judges chapter 5, verse 17, and she said, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? So she's saying here that, hey, we were out in battle and the tribe of Dan stayed in their ships. They would not. They refused to go into battle. And so I think that was one <laughs> big mistake on the part of Dan that showed, you know, basically their character, that they were not willing to partake in the battle of the Lord that God called them to, to fight in. So that was step one. Um, but then you look at the book of Judges down the line in chapter 18, and this whew, will blow your mind. Um, I can't, I don't want to read the whole thing, but basically I'll summarize what happens. So in the book of uh, Judges chapter 18, basically you see that the tribe of Dan says, hey, we didn't, you know, we are here in the land of Canaan, but we haven't picked a spot for ourselves. We want to pick our land. We want to have, you know, our inheritance. So um, they send five spies out and they go look for some land in Canaan. Well, they go out and they find um, this little valley called Laish. And they say, you know, this looks really good. And the people don't seem to be too tough. Like, let's go ahead and take it. So those five spies, um, they get near there and then they get to a house and they're, um, by a, that is owned by a man named Micah. And so they stay in this man's house. And while they're there, they, they are talking to somebody and they say, Hey, like you're a Levite. Like you're not, you know, you're not a Canaanite. Like you're not a Philistine. You know, you're not one of these, you know, outside people. You're a, you're an Israelite. Um, and so he says, yeah, I was hired, you know, this Levite says, yeah, I was hired to be a priest and in this man's house. And, you know, he has a, uh, basically he has an ephod and which is, you know, something worn by a priest. And then he also has, um, a, a graven image. So like an idol. And so, um, you know, this Levite, like I said, he was, you know, hired by this man, Micah to, to be his priest for assuming his people. So those five spies say, well, since you're a Levite, you know, you're spoke, you're called to be a priest. Can you let us know if we're going to be blessed in trying to take this land? And he says, yes, God will bless you in going and getting it. So what does the tribe of Dan do? They go out and they uh, steal the stuff from the guy's house that was nice enough to let him stay there. They steal Micah's stuff, including his idol, his graven image. And then they take his, the priest with them. And then um, they, but then they lie to the priest and say, you can be a, our priest. And wouldn't you rather do that? And he's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And then they go out, the tribe of Dan goes out to this people in the valley and slaughters them. It says they had them by the edge of the sword and then burn the city. So very unkind, very you know, cruel way of, you know, taking over this town. They could have just come in and said, Hey, you know, this land is ours now get out instead. No, they slaughter these people. And then when they, you know, set up their city, do they keep that man as a priest that they said, Hey, you're going to be our priest. No, they pick somebody from the son of Manasseh. So here we see, I believe why Manasseh replaced Dan, because he was taking, um, that was the tribe of people that um, basically, you know, were the priests 
for Dan. And did, you know, did the tribe of Dan set up an altar for God or do any praise for God? No, God said, yeah, I'll bless you and you get this land. And what do they do? They set up the graven image that they stole from Micah. So <laughs> it's pretty terrible. Um, so do I, I think that God in his wisdom said, I don't think I can, I can even think to name one of my people, the 144,000 after this tribe, because they were just so incredibly wicked. And it's really interesting because when you look at the book of Revelation at the very end in, in Revelation chapter 21, you know, this is basically where we see the new heaven and the or new earth, you know, Revelation 21, one says, you know, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then it says um, in verse seven and eight, something very interesting. He says, he that overcomes, so people who are good, who <laughs> overcome you know, the evil of this world shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he will be my son. And it says in verse eight, but the fearful, like the tribe of Dan who refused to fight in battle, the unbelieving, abominable murderers, whoremongers, and sor sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, that, which is the second death. Does this not describe the tribe of Dan to a T? They were, you know, fearful. They wouldn't participate in battling for the needs of their country, but they would go out and kill for themselves selfishly. They were unbelieving. They did not believe in God. They when they got what they wanted, they just forgot about God. They were abominable. They did terrible things. They were murderers. They went and slaughtered these people who were living peacefully by themselves. Um, you know, they were idolaters. They, instead of, you know, erecting uh, an altar to God, giving him praise, you know, they erected a, a graven image, which they stole. And, you know, and then they lied to this, you know, priest about. So we definitely see that Dan was not a good tribe of of, of the children of Israel. I mean, no, none of Israel was perfect, you know, we know in history, but Dan was a special breed of mean. <laughs> and so I think that God was trying to show us, hey, you're, you know, just because you're the son of Israel, just because you, you know, bear this name, uh, you know, you, you're the son of somebody important, that doesn't mean you're going to have the right to the tree of life. You can be taken out of, you know, the Lamb's book of life, you can lose your crown, you can lose your salvation. So I hope that makes it pretty clear as to why Dan was taken out of the uh, 144,000, the 12 tribes in the 144,000. And I think God is just making a, a clear distinction that this sort of behavior that Dan performed is not going to be part of God's new kingdom. And, um, but rather it'll be given to somebody else, which, you know, Joseph was a very righteous, um, son of of Israel and his firstborn was Manasseh. So hence it went to them. And Manasseh was the priest to Dan. So I think God at least was like, well, I'll let your priest <laughs> be part of the 144,000, but you know, no, not when you do the things that you do. So anyways, I hope that makes sense. And yeah, Jay Wendy, any other thoughts on that one? Wow. I mean, I, I appreciate how you tied in all those different stories about Dan. So that's really good answer. Praise the Lord. I just was thought, like, wow, God, like, that's really interesting. And that's the thing with the Bible. It's like the more you dig, the more there's just amazing stuff there. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, I thought that was pretty cool. And that's a good example of where we needed the Old Testament to help us understand this verse that was in the New Testament. Amen. hundred mm -hmm. percent. So do we want to get to those comments? Yes. 
Which one did you want to start? I think we'll start with Robert's first question. Okay. So Robert is asking, hey, everyone, I remember there was an article asking, is God a dictator? What makes someone a dictator? I wanted to, to read about it, but I can't find it. So I... I think, Tina, I don't know if you're still looking for if there's something in Bible Ask that directly on point to that. but So there was, a, I think, a clip from a long time ago. We're talking about um, God says, do not kill. We see him commit genocide in the Bible. Why? Um, that was a question that was submitted to us quite a while back. And um, I think in that answer, we say God is not a dictator. And so we make a reference to that. So I'm guessing that's the article. Maybe that you're referring to, Robert. I hope at least that's what you're asking about. And then I think usually when we talk about a dictator or like a tyrant, we're talking about someone who just imposes their will on other people and seeks to control them. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people think that that is how God is. God's like, keep my laws or else and do this or else, but I'm, I'm ready to show that that's not the case. That's a misunderstanding. And in fact, it's Satan who's the one that seeks to control, whether it's by, you know, by fear through uh, threat of death and all these things. That's how Satan operates. And even God, even though God's going to destroy the wicked, he's not saying, keep my will and do these things or else I'm going to kill you. I mean, he's saying it like I, I have to eliminate sin. I have to bring an end to it. I don't want you to be destroyed when I go and destroy sin. So please choose life. Please come my way. So it, it's this minor detail a lot of people miss, but let's look at the nature of God. So 2 Peter 3, 9, you know, along the lines of what I was just talking about, it says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I, I I usually say God plays the long game rather than saying, choose today. You're like, you must absolutely today pick me or not. And again, sometimes people might have that situation, but generally God's playing the long game. He knows how we work. He knows if he showed up today, asked us to do something psychologically, we will resist because we want to be free acting beings. And, you know, reverse psychology really is a thing because if you say someone tell someone hey go do this their natural reaction is no you go do it so god plays the long slow game hoping that by giving us space by giving us opportunity to make decisions by letting us suffer the consequences of our mistakes and realizing he was good that we will repent and come to him and repentance has to be voluntary it cannot be forced so almost by definition, the process that God has chosen by which we find salvation and, and come to repentance and receive his gift of salvation, like it's all voluntary. There's no forcing in there. It can't be. Love cannot be forced. And and then we come to, let's say, Romans 6, 16. It says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And ultimately, we do, we have a choice. We have, we're going to have one master or another that we have to pick from. And it's, are we going to follow Satan into sin that's going to lead to destruction? Or do we want to choose to serve God and obey him because that leads to righteousness, because that leads to love, because that leads to life? 
and and it it's almost like a natural law. If we are going to be sinning, if we're going to be attacking one another, stealing from one another, breaking each other's hearts, we are going to be causing death and causing pain and all these things. But if we are following God's law of love, we're 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 coming into a state that creates life, that that sustains life, that uh, is connected to God, the source of life. John 14, 15, Jesus, this is so critical to me. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible and in understanding how God is love and that God is not a dictator. So Jesus, the son of God says, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So don't just keep his commandments and then hope one day you'll love him. Like focus on loving God and and understanding God's love for you. And that should help you pr produce the, the fruit of keeping his commandments. And, and, and the closer you get to God, the, the, the more Holy Spirit you have, that then also helps you keep the commandments. Don't, and I'm not saying don't try to keep the commandments, but there's so many people to just front load it. And they think, okay, I'll make God happy by keeping his commandments. And, and they don't know God. They don't love God. And they're forcing it out of themselves. And life is miserable. Life is dark and terrible when that's the case. That's because they they front-loaded the law and, and didn't, didn't have the love for God. That just makes it a delight to keep the law. John 15, verse 13. Jesus, like, how does Jesus view us? Does he view us as servants, as slaves? He says, John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that to lay down one's life for his friends. And he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Saying, I don't have secrets. I'm not keeping secrets from you. You get to be sort of in that counsel of and, and knowing what's going on you you know there's we got intimacy with us you're in the know i i'm calling you a friend i mean tell, to me that's just so touching the god of the universe our creator saying you're my friend and then deuteronomy 6 uh let's go back to the old testament is is this concept of love and god being a god of love and and wanting us to love him back is this just New Testament theology. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the command, and these are the statutes and judgments with the, which the Lord your God has commanded, so God's commanded these things, to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you're crossing over to, to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God. And by the way, this is more a, a fear of reverence. It's not like quick in the boobs. Oh, I'm so scared of God. It's more like, okay, I understand God is huge. God is all powerful and, and respecting God. So, so he says, you know, these things that you may keep all his commandments and his, uh, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life. Why? Why does God want you to keep his law? That your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that you may be Sorry, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly 
as the Lord God of your father has promised you, a land flown with milk and honey. You shall love the Lord your God. I'll read it again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which, which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. If God wants you, you know, he, it's all about the love still, right? You notice that? He wants you to internalize these things because he knows this is how we're going to be happy. We're going to be successful. We're going to not have all the troubles and trials and tribulations and the problems we have because we're breaking his law. It's, I, I truly understand now why God wants us to meditate on his law and, and meditating on loving people. And it's not because God is the dictator, because God says so, but because God knows his way is better. He knows it's the only way for us to be able to coexist with each other and find joy and delight in it as opposed to making each other miserable. And he doesn't want to see anybody suffer. It's just like a parent where you have two kids and the parent has laws in place to make sure that the kids play well together. It's not because the parent's a tyrant. It's because the parent wants to see both kids safe and, and succeeding and, and loving each other. And this is exactly the same way. I mean, God is our father. He's our parent. And he's wanting to make sure that we love and intend to one another as, as siblings really should and not be like Cain who is just full of jealousy and pride and kills his own brother. So Tina, anything you'd like to add? I think that was really good. Um, I definitely think, you know, the heart of God is something very beautiful. So yeah, no, I think that was well said. Amen. Praise God. All right. Do we have a, did you want to tackle the next question from him? Are you ready to answer Robert's next question? Uh, the, I was reading this blog, that one. Yep. I think we'd, I'll just go ahead and read it. Um, okay. I was reading this. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Go ahead, Wendy. Right. I was reading this blog about love, and it was similar to biblical love. It read, love is an intimate emotional bond that strengthens over time through a series of vulnerable and supportive actions. We take actions that build love. We take actions that strengthen love. Over time, the intimate emotional bond that is love will happen. It makes sense. What's the difference between intimate and emotions? I guess for me, I don't think that necessarily is the biblical love that we're talking about because that's talking about love as an emotion, whereas the biblical love is is like a way of life and a, a state of being where, you know, we're we're prioritizing other people and are acting out in their best interest. And it might not be because you have that particular emotion. Now, as I mentioned earlier, just a moment ago, that it should be because like when we love each other people, we should have a sense of joy about it. You know, it should bring joy. It should be happiness and, and, and all that, but we don't do it because of the emotion or for the emotion. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, the emotional love is is very different than the the love the agape love to use the the Greek term in the Bible. That one's very different. Tina, what's your thought there? 
Yeah, I think um, we get into kind of this, I want to say, <laughs> tricky area when we start talking about love as, like you're saying, an emotional bond. Um, you know, is there, do you bond with somebody that you love? Yes. It, do you have strong emotions toward that person? Yes. But do you always feel, you know, this certain way you think you're going to feel like, you know, all lovey-dovey and that sort of thing? No, because it's not always, it's it's more than emotional, if that makes sense. Love is more than emotional. It's, you know, it's faithful. And, you know, faithful is, you know, you choose to do that. Not to say that you, you know, you hate your spouse because, well, I'm going to be faithful to them. You know, no, that's not that at all. It's more that, you know, you genuinely love them and you will do anything for their their best good and you you know, take them into consideration. Um, and sometimes, you know, you don't always have great feelings towards your, you know, the person that you do love, you know, maybe like, you know, parent to child, you know, they might love their child, but their child is screaming and crying and throwing a tantrum. You don't feel these wonderful feelings while your child is, you know, screaming and, you know, driving you crazy, but you love them more than anything. And so, you know, it, it's more than just an emotional bond. It's, um, it's something much deeper. It's, you know, it, it is also cognitive. It's something, um, yeah, it's an action. It's it's so much more than just feelings, um, just than just emotion. Emotions are part of it, but um, I just say it's it's not the core. Amen. And does that make and sense? I, yeah, and and intimacy definitely is a part of love, and and sure. really that word can mean a lot of different things. But there's a biblical intimacy, this concept of knowing someone. You know, and, and Jesus talks about how there might be some people who are surprised that on the last day, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's that's very intimate language. Jesus, Jesus said, we never had a relationship. Mm -hmm. You didn't know me. You didn't care about my will, what my desires, mm -hmm. what makes me happy. And likewise, I'm not going to care about what you what makes you happy. I don't I'm going to you're I'm not affiliated with you. And mm -hmm. I look at love, like if, if we think in terms of physics, you know, you have, you could have two particles that get drawn or two, you know, two uh, elements, atoms, two elements or two mm -hmm. protons come together and they're connected by a bond, something that holds them together. They're sort of glued there. And that's very much how love is also. It's that connection that holds us together, that brings us in closer to one another one other it could be in terms of proximity but also maybe in in thought and um how we're spending time together all these things go into love and and just like there's the electron that goes around from one proton to another and and that sharing of the electron might help hold the relationship together love is the same way where there's always giving by by both sides this exchange and and, you know, it, it's out of love. You're caring for that person you want to give and then they give and it just keeps going. It's a gift that doesn't stop giving. And it's just so beautiful and incredible where, um, yeah, I, I see like love just goes far beyond, true love goes far beyond any sort of emotion. Yeah, the emotions come with it, but it's, the emotions aren't the destination by any means. It's, it is the relationship and, and, and just being with someone and having someone. And so why is it so painful when someone dies? You, you, you feel that loss. You're no longer having the experiences with that person. 
the time you would walk together, speak together, do things together, it's all gone. And you feel now that loss of the relationship, the loss of the presence. And so love is just, we were never meant to experience that. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to always experience having each other's company, each other's fellowship, and, and just share experiences and support one another. It, love is just so beautiful and amazing the more we dig into it. Very much. Um, we see a comment from Gabriel Marquez. He says, thank you. Yes. And then uh, we have one from Otto, a question from Otto. Otto is asking, who wrote the Old Testament? Moses. He dies before the promised land. Thanks. Um, do you want me to answer that real quick? Sure. Sure. So um, the Bible, <laughs> all of it <laughs> was, it's a book of 66 books with 40 authors. So in the Old Testament, Moses is not the only author of the Old Testament. There are many authors in the Old Testament. I'm trying to remember of the 40 authors, I think it's 27 there um, that belong, there are authors of the Old Testament. And so that, you know, it's, you know, not just Moses, he wrote the first five books of the Bible is what we understand. But, you know, like the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah and Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah. Um, and Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, you know, Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. Um, most of the names of the people, you know, they, they wrote that book that is, you know, named after them. And then there's some other ones that were written by other prophets and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's many, many authors, uh, more than I can, you know, think off the top of my head as far as all of them, but, uh, definitely many authors yeah. in the Old Testament. And the Psalms are attributed to David, many of them, David. Proverbs. Yeah, and then he had some Solomon. servants that, yeah. And then his son Solomon wrote, um, Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. And, um, what's the other one that he did? Ecclesiastes. So, yeah. And, and oh, sorry. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting point that Otto asked about uh, how do we deal with the, the Pentateuch, the first five books being attributed to Moses when, you know, Deuteronomy ends with it and then Moses died and, and there's a little bit after it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, you know, Joshua probably wrote that last little bit. <laughs> there. I'm sure, you know, Moses, he knew he was going to pass away and I'm sure he handed this off to, you know, his successor who was Joshua and said, Hey, you know, this is, um, this is something that the Lord put on my heart to write these books. Will you keep them going? And so I'm sure, you know, either Joshua or somebody you know, close to Moses, um, went ahead and just wrote that last little chapter or so and um you know kept it going I mean, because we know the next uh book of the bible is joshua so <laughs> that so joshua yeah. definitely had a role in writing scripture as well well I, I don't know if we could attribute it to him or not i i don't know i haven't dug into that but but it is totally a logical fallacy to say that because the last parts of deuteronomy are post moses's death that he couldn't have written everything before that point Mm -hmm. And the Bible itself actually says Moses wrote things down. So, for example, mm -hmm. Exodus 24, 4, it says, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Mo mm -hmm. Numbers 33, 2. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of the journeys at the command of the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, Deuteronomy 31, 9. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests. Deuteronomy 31. So this is way mm -hmm. down in, in Deuteronomy. Yeah. 31 22 it says therefore moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of israel mm. so i it's the bible itself is telling us that moses wrote yeah definitely 
All right, and I see Gabriel says, I'm learning so much. Thank you. I hope you are. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, shall we get our next question? I know we don't have too much time, but let's try and get through as many questions tonight as we can. Sure. Let's go ahead and get our next question up. So Dan is asking, why is Matthew 17, 21 left out of a lot of Bibles? I've only found it in the NASB and KGV. Thanks. All right. So great question, Dan. And you, if you keep digging, you're going to find that there's lots of verses like this or even parts of verses where it's in one version of the Bible, but or, or like the, the King James versions, but not in later ones. So what's going on? So if we look at Matthew 17, verse 21, we're, we're going to pull up the NKJV. That's the version we usually use here. It says, however, this kind, referring to uh, demons being cast out, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So that is what the sort of the, the King James line of books say. If we, if you read the, um, some of the other ones, yeah, the verse is not there at all. Now, the NKJV has a footnote. It says the NU text. So this is one of the manuscripts that newer versions of the Bible are based on. It says this one omits this verse. So what happens is there's, how do we know what is the New Testament? It is, you know, it's it, we know it's written in Greek, but we don't have the original letters written by any of the Greek authors. We don't have like, here's the original letter penned by Paul or the original book of Revelation penned by John. We don't have those. What we do is we have copies of copies of copies of copies that have come through the generations. So how, how do you know which one is better? Because at times there might be little inconsistencies. And, and this is one of those where some, some lineages, some lines of these, these uh, copies of the New Testament have some language, others might not. So the New Testament that the NKJV and the original KJV are based on, that one is called the Textus Receptus, the received text or the majority text. And, you know, there's lots and lots of different copies of these manuscripts. And then I think it was Eusebius, or Erasmus, I always get them mixed up. One of them went through and sort of combined and put them together, and he came up with his own version of the the Greek, the original Greek. It says, okay, so based on my compilations, this is what the Greek is, and then that was then going to be influential on the New King James Version. The NU text, the one that the modern verse, books, uh, the modern Bibles like the NAV are based on, they are using a new text. That one is based on the Codex, Codex Sinaiticus, which was found in the Vatican. And then the Codex, sorry, Codex Sinaiticus that was found in a monastery in Mount Sinai. And then you have the Codex Vaticanus, which is found in the Vatican. They are believed to be the oldest text, the oldest copies we have. And the belief is the further back you go, the more original you have, the more reliable it is. But there are many people who question the authenticity and the, the accuracy of the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. It's also a logical fallacy to say older is better or that these also are older. Um, so it's one of these things like, okay, what do you go with? 
it's not going to more often than not, it's not making a, a gigantic deal. It's not going to be something that just sends your faith one way or the other, fortunately. So for example, these books that leave out uh, Matthew 17, 21, the part about, you know, you need prayer and fasting to remove the spirit. We can go to Mark, uh, Mark 9, verse 29. It says, so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, the NU text versions will leave out and fasting, but they at least have prayer there. So even the NIV and the newer versions will still have the part that you need prayer. So what about the fasting? It absolutely makes sense that you would, you might need fasting. We might not even need these verses to realize that there's times where we need to be able to fast, to be in the right spiritual state, the right heart space to be able to um, properly pray for spirits to be removed. And we could go to Isaiah 58, where God's talking about the real fast and, and what that really looks like. It is not just starving yourself, but it's really about you know, humbling yourself and, and putting others first in your life and, and caring to help people who are in, who are burdened and imprisoned. And, and, you know, even this language could apply to people who are in the bondage of, of, of uh, demons. So, so I, I think it's quite clear that the King James Version Bibles, those are accurate. It is, it is what God would have us say, but you know we don't we don't have to rely on that text. And if you want to look at what happens when we rely on ourselves for for trying to cast out demons, we don't have to look any further than Acts nineteen, sorry, verse thirteen, where it's talking about, for example, the sons of Sceva, who you know got a bit proud, thought they could just casually throw the name of Jesus around and Paul, and they get attacked by the the evil spirits. So. It's very fascinating, but there's a lot of differences. That or there, there are these minor differences between Bible verses, but if you really dig through, look at the parallel verses at times, you realize that they're not really changing things that dramatically usually. So, Kena, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I know that it, it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I'm always, I'm personally a big fan of the King James Version. I'm not somebody who says you have to only read the King James Version. I think, you know, you can definitely get a lot of things out of other versions. And I think what speaks, where you hear God speaking to you, like that's, you know, the Bible you should be reading. And it's good to, you know, check across different texts to learn different things and um, just get a different perspective on things. Um, but, and, you know, I've heard different, you know, theories about this. Um, I'm just saying just from my own personal walk with God, I, I started reading the King James as a, as a young child. And that's what I grew up reading. And it makes sense to me. And it, I, I'm not thrown off by the old English because I grew up with it, um, you know, reading it since a, a young age. But I know other people, you know, they like the, the newer versions because it's just, they understand it better. It's more clear. Um, you know, will, you know, this, you know, version having, you know, having the verse left out, will that you know, keep you out of the kingdom? Probably not. But, um, you know, it, again, it's up to you as to your, your decision, what you think will, you know, bless you and be the most effective for your walk with God. And, um, you know, uh, as far as, you know, your, what you, how you feel you're, you're connecting with the Lord and, and understanding scripture. So again, you know, I think it's a matter of, you know, 
how is God speaking to you in the in the Bible that you're you're reading? So um yeah, but again, nothing wrong with old King James Version, but <laughs> um, you know, other versions they're okay too. Um, what was I gonna say? But yeah, I like that too. That um I mean I like this verse though. I guess I would be sad if my Bible didn't have that specific specific verse in it just because I specifically like that verse in, in Matthew because I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting concept. But yeah, can you find this, you know, basic same concept in other parts of the Bible of, you know, like the NIV and stuff? Yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. I don't think that those versions would disagree with that verse. So I think you're still okay. Um, if that makes sense. Exactly. All right. I know we are at the hour mark. Um, guys, so we could I'm sorry. Yeah, I think we could quickly answer Gabriel's question. Okay. All right. So let's bring that question up. So Gabriel is asking, can you please explain the origin of the Jabez prayer? So uh, I know that I remember back when I was around college time where the book of Jabez mm. or the prayer of Jabez came out. It was a little book about it yeah. and, uh, sort of like this big fad of, I'm, and I'm not trying to use it derogatorily, but, you know, encouraging people to be bold with their prayers. And there is a little bit of biblical basis for it. It comes from the book of First Chronicles, starting at uh, chapter four, verse nine. And it says, now Jabez was an honorable, was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez saying, because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, and your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I, I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. So this is where the prayer of Jabez came, came from. It's here in the Bible, and definitely a thing I think of, but probably not as often as I should, because it does... Um, I think give us some encouragement to be willing to be bold with our prayers, but it is interesting with his prayer that it's not, not just for himself, but um, I think that as a prayer of Jabez book brings out, you know, these things could be a blessing and God could be glorified through granting this prayer. Yeah, definitely. So I think, yeah, that's, I love that prayer. And I remember when that came out too, that little book, and I think some people took it to an extreme, but I think, you know, um, you see in this prayer that, you know, Jabez seems very humble. Um, he's like, Lord, bless me that I can be a blessing. And I think that's a very solid prayer uh, for any of us to pray. And I think it's also interesting that, you know, it, it says his, he was, I, his mother said, I bore him in pain and he's saying, help me to not bring pain upon anyone. So it's like this, this thing that was part of him coming into the world and he's like, he feels burdened by it. And he's like, God set me free from this. And I don't want to be defined by my past. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think it's a really beautiful thought. I mean, how many of us have, you know, things that we, you know, we're born into, it's not our fault, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe our parents, you know, had a sin in their life and we want to correct that in our lives. You know, we don't want to keep that sin ongoing. We don't want to keep, you know, bad things going. We want to reverse that and, you know, free ourselves from those curses and, and from those things. And I think God is more than happy to, um, answer that prayer, you know, 
you know, if you have parents that have addiction, you know, Lord, set me free from this addiction that I might not have an addiction and pass this mm -hmm. to my children. I think that's a very solid prayer. And I think, you know, you see that even in the, the third commandment, we're talking about don't take the Lord's name in vain. Um, he says, you know, because you know, basically the curses are to those children of people who hate me, but um, blessing is to those and mercy is to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God definitely wants to break down those curses and, and bring in new and beautiful things into our lives if we ask him to. Amen. Amen. Thank you for asking, Gabriel. Yes. And thank you for joining us. We had a lot of new viewers tonight, and it's great to see you here. We hope you will be able to join us next week as well. Yeah. Thank you, Otto, for uh, maybe you've joined us before, but this first time maybe call you uh, ask questions. Thank you also. And yeah. Robert, thank you always for being faithful and joining us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We love all our friends out there. So we just want to remind everybody, um, you know, we are at the hour, a little past the hour, so we're sorry about that. Um, but we do want to remind everybody that we are here live every Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we hope you come again next Friday night and join us again for Bible questions and answers. And if you've been blessed tonight and you've you know, enjoyed this program, please be sure to like and share our content. It just helps us get God's words out or God's word out and, um, you know, bless others with our ministry. That's what we want to do. We want to, um, you know, speak to the world, the truth of the Bible and answer questions that people have about the Bible based on the Bible and the Bible only. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we love our audience out there and we pray that you will um, please bless us by, <laughs> by um, doing us this favor of sharing and liking our content. So before we close for the night though, oh, and we want to remind everybody, if you have a Bible question that you would like formally featured, on our weekly show, please be sure to go to bibleask.org forward slash live, and we would love to feature your question and give it a really good answer. So we pray that you're blessed tonight, and we pray that you'll join us again next week. So before we close, though, Jay or Wendy, you want to pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this evening to share share your word with people, answer these questions. We've all been there, Lord, or we just, we have these questions and we don't know where to look for guidance and getting them answered and, um, you know, getting other people's thoughts and perspectives on your word as well, Lord. And we are grateful that we, you've given us this opportunity to share. And we thank you so much for your Sabbath day, for this time you give us every week to rest from our labors, rest from our work, and just be able to spend this time with you and um, reconnect to you at a deeper level, Lord. And we ask you'll be with each person this evening and um, throughout the Sabbath day and the week ahead and uh, comfort them, guide them in your wisdom, and help them to draw near to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for that. And again, we hope to see you all next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Good night, everybody. God bless you. Bye.